Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, regular listeners, you may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Sarit Becker. Hi, I'm Itamar Srulovic. Together we run a couple of Middle Eastern restaurants in London. And we also do our fair share of food writing. You're listening to Honey & Co., where we take turns interviewing interesting people from the world of food in front of a small audience at our deli, Honey & Spice. In this series, we'll be meeting producers and makers who create some of the essential ingredients in cooking. The people you're going to hear from supply us, inspire us, improve our cooking and our life in general. We hope you enjoy and have fun geeking out with us about all things food. Enjoy! Enjoy! This is the last in this series where we've been chatting to makers, growers and producers. We saved one special guest until last. Tonight we have Guy Singh Watson of Riverford Organic joining us. We talked a lot about worms and aphids, we talked about earth and we talked about pesticides in supermarkets. It was a really interesting evening and if anyone that gets the boxes knows about Guy's rants, you're in for a treat. We have plenty of those. Hope you enjoyed listening. You know, in this series we're uh, kind of looking into the, the building blocks of, of what we eat. You know, we, we talked about olive oil and, and butter and bread and really kind of the, the elements of what we cook and what we eat. And I think most of what we eat and as a species what we've been eating throughout our existence is about vegetables we are more than proud more than honored to have mr vegetables <laughs> you've been called that before i uh, know i haven't no, yeah. no, that's the first that's the first and that's recorded so there you go guy sing watson from Riverford Farm. I'm sure everybody here heard about this guy needs really no introduction. I think that now more than ever, it's important for us to talk about vegetables, how they've grown, how they've sold, how they get to us, what we do with them. And I am beyond pleased to have, I think the, the biggest authority on all of these subjects here with us. Please a big welcome to Kai Singh Watson. So tell us a little bit about how you got into farming and how you became a farmer. Oh, well, um, my parents were both farmers. But, um, I guess my mum was maybe more of a cook than a farmer. And, and I, it was just, you know, from when I could walk, I think it was always 
kind of inevitable. That was what I was going to do. I did try and escape destiny a couple of times, but I was always drawn back, back to the farm. And I, I just feel really privileged to have found my thing, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, found I, it where you were born. Yeah, and you know, I had to go and look at other things, but really there was never much doubt that that was what I was going to do. And I, I did try, um, my dad gave me a pig when I was eight. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, who went on to have many piglets, 14 every time, twice a year. <laughs> That's a lot of pigs. <laughs> that was a, a lot, lot of pigs. Yeah. And then I kept sheep and uh, milk cows. And, and to be honest, it, it wasn't really until I started growing vegetables that I, I found my... Your calling. My calling, really. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm rather ashamed to say that as a young man, I, I had a pretty foul temper. And, and, you know, that's not a good thing around animals, so... And the vegetables take it a little bit <laughs> more quietly. I think the f- vegetables, maybe they force you uh, to kind of introspect a little bit. You can't blame it on anyone else. You know, deal with it. You know, find out what it is that's making you angry and, and sort it out, which, you know, 40 years on, I, I like to think that I have. Well, that's progress for you. That is growth. You've kind of brought a lot of different ideas into farming at a time where farming was in a massive change I think you know for, for the longest time in human history that you know we were farming a certain way and that we had a certain connection to our vegetables and to the people who grew them and I think in, in this kind of century things started to change and grow and go in very strange directions and you kind of radicalized the whole idea yeah, you started with I, organic I, farming in 83 yeah. I think 86 I 86? sowed my first leeks but it was I mean, it was. I think my father was very uh, influential, and you know, he started farming after the war, 1951. There was still food rationing. It was all about producing more, more or less, whatever the cost, and you know, that involved increasing amounts of fertilizer and, and pesticides. And, and I guess by the time I was, you know, a teenager, he was starting to get disillusioned with that. And I think that probably, I can remember walking across certain fields with him and him explaining to me, you know, why the crop had failed, that, you know, the soil was exhausted, that it couldn't take this intensity of, of cropping. And, and I think that did kind of all, you know, sink in. And then when I did go to university and start studying the soil and ecology and so on, and maybe it all added up. And, and, and you know, when I came back to the farm, you know, that, that's why well, my fa- my brother had just come out of... Um, hospital with paraquat poisoning so that was quite influential you know uh, you know just these chemicals that I was using routinely as a teenager with um, you know skulls and crossbones all over them and I, I was incredibly negligent I mean you know I hope it doesn't come to catch up on me uh, you know because uh, you know I was regularly spraying the barley and you know drenched in these bloody pesticides I can remember drenching sheep you know and, and you wore oil skins and it got hot by the end of the day and everyone took them off and you know you were drenched in 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 um poison in poisons yeah these were nerve poisons that's what you were dipping the sheep in and 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 you know and and a lot of farmers did get sick from it so you know i think we were all incredibly negligent and you know hope i got away with it but uh, still in 86 it was not you know the whole idea of organic farming certainly on a bigger scale was not really something that we thought of yeah that people thought about you know, other than, you know, well, I think organic food, even, you know, when I was in my teens, it was very much, you know, the hippie kind of margin. It was not yeah. mainstream at all. I suppose that probably second generation. There were a whole lot of people in the 60s who ran away. They all went west. You know, they went to Pembrokeshire or 
Devon or Cornwall or the Hebrides or something, you know, and they all, you know, to get away and start this new idyllic life, which involved growing food organically. So, you know, I was following in the footsteps of those people and some of them made a real go of it and some of them were kind of role models to me. And I did spend quite a lot of time with those people when I was, you know, floundering around trying to uh, learn what I was doing. So it didn't feel as radical as it probably would have been if I hadn't grown up, if I'd grown up somewhere else. They call it the Golden Triangle, TQ9, our postcode, as they prefer it, TQ9ers. And, uh, you know, there is, there were a lot of sandals and uh, a lot of organic vegetables and, yeah, and, and a lot of dope, yeah. <laughs> Happy days. Which wasn't, yeah. which was my first crop, of course. <laughs> You know that this is recorded, yeah? I think it's probably outside the yeah, statue. We'll go there, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, now, you know, I wouldn't touch the stuff. Uh, <laughs> coming soon to Riverford Box near you. Um, that, that'll be a business model and a half. Was it accepted? I mean, you, you start, we say, okay, we're going to do things radically different. We're going to take away everything that you know, is meant to help us be successful as farmers and do without it. How did it go down in TQ9? (laughs) Well, it was funny. My first kind of thing was to go and talk to some of the older guys on the farm. There was in particular a guy called John Scott who was, you know, he must have been farming since the 40s. He was playing with a horse when my father took on the tenancy. So, you know, we're really... And I told him that I was going to grow organically and I thought he must have some wisdom. And he did have a tremendous amount of wisdom, but he said, you know, he said, don't think I'm going to pick up a whole boy. You know, I've had enough singling turnips. And, uh, you know, he wanted to, you know, for him it was all about going backwards, which is a, um, and maybe it did seem like that, but I I really don't think organic farming should be regarded as going back in time. You know, a lot of it is, is, you know, learning how you're going to control the weeds, you know, without that level of of, uh, hand work, which on the whole we have. And, and, you know, it does still go wrong sometimes, but, you know, we don't spend a lot of time on our hands and knees pulling out weeds these days. And and we have found, through understanding the ecology of the crops and and their pests and their pest predators, you know, we have in most instance, instances found ways of, of controlling uh, the pests and diseases. I'm not saying it's a complete thing. You know, we still we still do struggle with, you know, potato blight and uh, weeds in very early crops of carrots and so on. But, uh, yeah, mostly it's going forward rather than... Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah. I've... You know, we, we went to the farm a couple of weeks ago and it's, it's incredibly sophisticated and, and incredibly creative you know we've seen the the little lettuce beds and um we we were they they explained to us how how they manage them that they sprout all the weeds and then they burn them and then they plant the lettuce leaves and they come back it's really very very sophisticated and very thought and very kind of as a matter of fact that that is a technique getting a stale seed bed which is which is centuries old you know you make a very fine seedbed and you roll it and create all the conditions perfect for weed germination in fact sometimes we'll even cover it with the fleeces which keep the moisture in and it gets really warm under there and all the seeds well 95% of the seeds in the top couple of inches will germinate and then you kill them either by a very very shallow cultivation or through a thermal it's just like a gas grill that you run over the top and then you sow your crop, or sometimes you even sow the crop first and burn afterwards just before the crop comes through, and it comes through without any weeds, and, uh, you know, that 
you know, it can reduce hand weeding by 95%. You know. It's very sophisticated yeah. and very, very, sounds very modern as well. <laughs> you had this knowledge kind of laying around you or you had to invent as you go? Well, I do love, as soon as everybody else, when everyone else becomes an organic farmer, I want to do something else for sure, because that's just what I'm... I'm so I, I love the discovery that there, there's no blueprint for how to do it. You have to kind of work it out yourself. But, you know, you don't want to make all the mistakes yourself. So I did spend a lot of time driving around the country, and indeed in Holland they were, you know, considerably ahead of us in, in some of these techniques. So I would go and visit farmers in Holland and in the east of England and just learn whatever I could from them and then go home, experiment, observe, find out what works, review it, you know, change it a little bit and, you know, and 35 years later, that's still what I'm doing and I'm still learning and, I, and I, that's what I love about it, really, that you're not... I mean, most arable farmers, you know, a, a chemical... A, I have to say a chemical salesman, he'll call himself a crop technologist or an agronomist, will come round and give you a programme of what sprays to put on your field on what days through the summer and the, the, the farmer is just completely de-skilled and he's led by this guy who's coming around who is making a percentage on every chemical that he sells that doesn't sound like a good way to make decisions to me but that is the way most arable farm most arable farms their source of information and, and I don't think it's very surprising that they've gone in the direction that they have so it's much more satisfying I think to build up that knowledge yourself and 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 you know, there's a great pride in being self-sufficient and, and finding most of the inputs from within the farm rather than, you know, wherever in the world that spray or fertiliser comes from. I always think about, you know, cooking, which is quite immediate. And, you know, if I want to change something, you know, then it takes me five minutes. But if you want to try something new or change something and see the results for you, it's a year and probably a year's salary. Yeah, yeah, it is... The years go by quite quickly. <laughs> no, no, I bet they do, but I'm sure that you've had some... Yeah, I'm just, some... I suppose I'm just really glad that I'm not growing fruit or trees or something, because then, you know, you're talking, you know, lifetimes. Well, in fact, we are growing nuts and and fruit now, and, and it is, it's a much more, you know, your, 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 your mistakes are going to be much more expensive and much longer lasting, so... You know, you really do have to do your research then. But So I know, I was driving around the fields last night and we've just had this wonderful warm weather, you know, after a very cold spell. And you can see the, the sweet corn and the squash and pumpkins, all the sun lovers are really taking off. And then certain areas of the field, they're not, you know, and you're, you're always asking, well, what is it that was in that bit of field? What did we do slightly differently before? Was it the way it was cultivated? Was it that the muck spreader was going too fast over that bit and spread it too thin? You know, constantly asking those questions and... And learning, you know, coming up with theses and, 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 and checking that against, you know, what's actually working in the field and, uh, you know, and learning. And, and, you know, that's great, isn't it? So, you know, I, I think a lifetime, but, you know, I hope I'm still learning the day I finally pop my clogs. Oh, you know, that's the dream. I assume if you have a year's crop going bad or if you, I don't know, overplant or underplant or, you know, how do you pay the bills? How, how do you... I suppose I am in a financially secure position now and I am able to experiment with some of the more outlandish things that I haven't felt that I'm able to before because, you know, it was, you know, I was 
spent many years quite close. I can't tell you how many times I remortgaged my house. So it, it is, uh, yeah, it's a, it, as I say, it's, it's, a, it's a journey of, of discovery. And I used to take it all, when it went wrong, I used to take it very personally, actually. It was me and the big man up there. And what's he got against me that's, you know, made my potatoes get blind Shouting at the cucumbers. Yeah, no, I, you know, <laughs> I was working, you know, ridiculous hours, you know, and I was probably spent 10 or 15 years of my life suffering from fatigue and you know when you're fatigued you get quite emotional and I I would you know weep in the fields I can remember collapsing to my knees in a field with that was had potato blight and I was trying to spray it with copper sulfate which has been banned this year which is probably a good thing and uh, the sprayer was leaking the tractor got a, f- a flat tyre and I was in the middle of the field, what am I going to do? I just, I just had enough. I clapped to my knees and wept. <laughs> but there you go, the end world didn't end and that was 25 years ago. And I've got a better tractor now. <laughs> so just to explain, you know, we do hear a lot about organic vegetables, biodynamic vegetables. We talk, Willie talked to us about GM vegetables or pesticide free or with pesticide. What what should we what should we buy? what's the difference you know I know it's a big question oh, but give us a if I wasn't a vegetable grower myself the vegetables I would want to grow would probably be grown on a relatively small scale they would be local they'd be super fresh they'd be unpackaged they'd be grown by a farmer that I knew that I felt I could trust I think I'd want them to be certified organic because I'm afraid too often I've told. I've been told the thing oh it's as good as organic I just you know it's too expensive to get the certification and you walk around the back and they're using just as many sprays as everyone else I'm very cynical of people who say it's as good as organic but um, the Demeter thing biodynamics this this, uh, is it's I feel a bit strange about that I mean that was all the work of Rudolf Steiner who was a I, I'm, I'm fundamentally resistant to all dogmatists and I've read few people more dogmatic than Rudolf Steiner and it was just his a load of ideas that he dreamed up about how you know crops should be grown or animals should be looked after you know for a man who was a kind of academic he got and he and he applied the same to education actually you know with the Steiner schools and it's just extraordinary how many things he got right so <laughs> despite the, yeah despite that I'm, I'm reluctant to write it off completely but it's just it's does everyone know what what what's the biodynamic system it's really it's it, it almost sounds like witchcraft yeah it's, yeah but it's not it, it has some really good things going for it's plant it's planting moon cycles yeah and and, and homeopathy would be part of it the idea that you can you know mix something in water and dilute it so many times that there's not even a trace of a molecule in each day you know it's completely you know I don't know whether you know anti-science as we know it but yeah. actually it's not anti-science as we know it. I don't think I think you know the, the fact that you, there is no no one can understand how it may work a lot of people who I really respect do swear by it though I do understand that it hasn't been people haven't been able to prove it in replicable yeah. experiments so I think one has to view it with a, a, a degree of caution yeah I mean if you read about it you say this is crazy but if you go see uh, a biodynamic farm or even an allotment grown on biodynamic principles e- there is <laughs> yeah I, I meet some very good growers you know very competent who really know what they're doing who absolutely swear by it and, and I would be reluctant to write it off completely yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true baby it's me Kiki Palmer 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So uh, we know that, say, organic vegetables would be, you know, grown without the use of pesticides. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, okay. Grown so soil. Sorry. Well, it's, always, uh, it's not entirely true to say without pesticides because there were, I mean, when I laughed, there were we were, when I last looked it up, we were allowed to use soap, uh, certain formulations of copper against fungal diseases, which I think have mostly been banned this year. Uh, we were allowed to use certain natural pyrethrums extracted from chrysanthemum. I think they've pretty much been banned. A soap just kind of suffocates insects. It, it breaks the surface tension and the water is drawn into their, is it spiracles, whether through they breathe through their exoskeleton and, and then they drown essentially so that and, and it has you know zero mammalian toxicity so but we don't even use that anymore actually because we we did i think we have occasionally used it in our polytunnels in the spring when we get an outbreak of aphids but generally we are working to encourage predators and parasites of the insects to control them and if you then start spraying with soap which kills all the insects uh, you are killing the predators and parasites as well you and you're into a kind of self-perpetuating cycle and actually we have done replicated experiments on the farm with this and sprayed plots with various treatments including soap and garlic sprays and neem that was one we were allowed to use and then a kind of placebo and two weeks later virtually all the plots had almost all the same number of aphids in it because in some plots you you know you the soap did kill the pest but it also killed all the predators and parasites you know so the ones that you never kill all of them no. you know even if you kill 95 percent, the five percent remaining you know replicate very quickly they're on like a 10-day life cycle in the in the summer uh so and on that basis we stopped using soap we were supplying supermarkets <coughs> at the time uh, and and we never have done in the field since and we get fewer and fewer aphids and you know we try to really look after the surrounding hedgerows and so on so there are lots of flowering plants so if you start understanding the ecology of lacewings and hoverflies, the adults all feed on flowering plants. So you need to have flowering plants within reasonable proximity of your crop. And then the adults lay their eggs in the crop and the eggs hatch out and the juveniles eat the aphids 
and uh, you know it's a beautiful kind of balance that you yeah. get to but it's not as beautiful as the parasitic wasp that goes around and lays a tiny little wasp and they lay an egg inside each aphid and ten days later they burst out alien style and just leave a mummified lovely they, oh, they yeah. are really beautiful honestly when you go around and you see you start seeing a few mummified aphids you just you know you don't have to worry almost however many there are you know in 10 days time you know they'll just be you'll turn a leaf over and it'll be just covered in mummified aphids which is the joy the joys of the farmer but just just to, to clarify the the vegetables that i would buy non-organic how how did they get to the supermarket what did they go through depends on the vegetable but i mean a lettuce will have been sprayed every week of its life so it might be in the in the uh, in the, the fields for eight weeks in a greenhouse for three weeks and it will be sprayed with an insecticide every 10 days and probably with a fungicide every 10 days some of those insecticides are nerve poisons it will be sprayed with probably with weed killers some of which are hormone disruptors you know the, so there is and I've got to tell you the story about I was walking over a field in Cambridge with this farmer and uh, he was interested in converting to organic. When I walk around my fields, I'm always nibbling at whatever's there, you know, and, um, and I bent down to I was pick, as well, actually. Pick, <laughs> good, good, that's what we like. Bent down to pick a leaf of lettuce, and he said, oh, I wouldn't eat that, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's what he says. He does this was what he was growing and selling to be, you know, it was sprayed, you know, yesterday or whatever. And then we went in and had lunch, and they showed me around his garden, and, and in his garden he had his own vegetable plot. He didn't eat his own stuff he sold at the supermarket and it was grown virtually organically yeah he was like he was he he wouldn't call it organic but he was he and there, there was a certain sort of antipathy towards organic farmers but yeah your vegetables are sprayed quite a lot every one of you will have glyphosate in your urine i can almost guarantee that uh, unless you've eaten organic bread you know exclusively and flour and you know everyone used to say glyphosate was virtually safe to eat, um, it's, you know, is Monsanto is facing, well, Bayer, who bought them now, are facing numerous court cases uh, globally because it's, you know, turning out that it certainly Not isn't safe. safe. Yeah. yeah. So, and having said that, I mean, you know, and that all sounds incredibly alarmist, you know, you will probably go out and think you should never eat a vegetable again. I mean, the most important thing is that everyone eats lots of fresh fruit and vegetables, really, whether they're organic or not. And if you can get organic ones, great, but don't stop eating fruit and vegetables because, you know, every bit of science suggests, suggests that we should be eating a plant-based diet. And I would hate to be responsible for scaring people off fruit and vegetables because the risks associated with a bad diet are far higher than the then, risks associated yeah. with yeah. pesticide but contamination. This is what, what I, I do think that we are, and a lot of what, what we were talking about here the last couple of months is how separated we are from the process of what we eat and how, how little we know about it and how disconnected. And I think a lot of the confusion stems from that. Mm. And this brings me to, to another kind of uh, innovation that you, that, that, that you brought to the world of farming which is supplying directly mm. and this I, I didn't realize until we were in the farm what a huge deal that was because it goes straight from the field to people's homes sort of 95% plus of what we sell is is delivered directly to the doorstep and, and probably about I think we grow maybe 15% of that ourselves now maybe 20% including the farm in France that we have and the rest comes from a cooperative of growers around the farm in, in Devon and from 
growers sometimes abroad, sometimes further afield in the UK. And it comes into the barns either down there in Devon or we also have a pack house in Peterborough on a farm that we've got there. Yeah, and it's packed and it goes straight out to the to the doorstep. Why did you... Because there, there, there wasn't a, an existing business model of Not sending really. boxes I, it, well, to I, you know, home. I wish it's I actually quite, quite almost a strange idea. You know, I'm going to... Once a week, I'm going to get some beetroot and... Yeah, it was a ridiculous idea. I mean, you know, in this, we're going back to, uh, well, 93. But I think the first people who started box teams, there were two of them. Um, one up in uh, uh, Lancashire, I think, and one in Devon, just down the road from us. And, and they started in the early 90s or, or late 80s. And it was a time when, you know, supermarkets were selling more and more... SKUs, SQUs, you know, so up to 20,000, 40,000, 50,000 different. You could go and choice. If you had the money, go into a hypermarket, you could have anything you wanted. And, and you know, the people, fewer and fewer people were having delivered things delivered, whether it was milk, bread, fish or whatever. It was all dying and everyone was going to these out-of-town supermarkets where you could get whatever you want. So the idea that we were going to deliver a box of vegetables where you didn't have choice to your door seemed completely contrary to, you know, any self-respecting... MBA would tell us that it was a dead loss. Never listened to them. And I, I took some persuading from this person who lived 15 miles away that he said, come on, guy, you should try this. We'd both sold to supermarkets. We both hated it. And uh, he said, you really should try this. In fact, he had so many customers. He said, here, you can have 20 of them or something. <laughs> and the first time I walked up a garden path and knocked on the door and handed over this box of vegetables and had this rapturous reception from someone who really cared what they tasted like and, and how they were grown and how fresh they were and, you know, there was no packaging. And, and, you know, compared to the experience of speaking to a supermarket buyer, I tell you, it didn't take very much to persuade. It just went on two or three years. It just quietly grew away. And then till I finally had a, a blowout with the uh, Sainsbury's buyer. And, um, and then we decided we were going to concentrate all our resources on developing the veg boxes. And as soon as we put a bit more effort into it it just kind of took off and so that was about 2001 by then so before that everything you would grow would go to supermarkets uh it went to some wholesalers in london a few restaurants sometimes they paid the bills sometimes they didn't i'm sure you always pay your bills (laughs) we do we do yeah yeah. no we do yeah Yeah, good Well, the wholesalers were the worst, and then there were, and and then the supermarkets. Were, it was just unspeakably unpleasant dealing with them, and a few local shops. So we we had many many masters, and and then we decided. Do at we, a tell me, point, tell me a little bit about this this part of the supply chain about your, your dealing with supermarket buyers, and how, how does that work? Because it's still how most of us cons- consumer get right. vegetables. Right. Well, you know, the supermar- a supermarket buyer is rewarded solely on how much margin they can generate from a foot of shelf space. And if they generate more than the guy sitting next to him, they get the next promotion. And and how can you get how can you get, you know, more margin by squeezing your suppliers and you know in just unspeakably unpleasant ways whether it's kickbacks on the packaging on the haulage, you know, whether it's agreeing to one price and then halfway into the season saying, no, they're going on promotion, we're going to pay you another price. And of course, no one will stand up to them because no one will even say anything about it. Actually, even after they've been driven to bankruptcy, most people will not say anything about how they've been supplied by a supermarket, how they've been dealt with by a supermarket, because they know that the next company they want to work with is going to be dealing with, you know, one or four supermarkets and they won't get a job. I mean, it is, you know... Some people say they have got better. I mean, there is a 
uh, government quango uh, who who is supposed to look after their behavior their, their treatment of suppliers and they may have got marginally better since so, I've but, but how, company, how does but that how lot. does that work you know if if you're you know, if if your suppliers are so squeezed, well, okay. Our so final thing was we, we were growing little gem lettuce for I'm going to say Sainsbury's. I don't give a damn. I'm always told I shouldn't mention the name, but it was Sainsbury's, and we had agreed that really we needed 18p a lettuce to be able to survive. 15p would just about cover our variable costs, and we you know we wouldn't go bust straight away. And we were about two or three weeks into the season. They said they're going on promotion for six weeks. You're going to get paid 9p. And, and, and what do you do? I mean, most people would say yes. And, and I did actually, and we'd have their, their, their lovely head of public relations and their organic guy, a uh, man called Robert Duxbury. I said, well, uh, you know, I wonder what Robert Duxbury would say about that. And he said, Robert who? That, you know, he didn't even know who the person was that was supposed to be determining their, their, public. Pu their policy and so on. Uh, that, you know, that, there was such a gulf between the sort of public bullshit that they put out there and the actual reality of, of how they behave. And, and, and it was just, you know, it was just, abs you know, it was absolutely despicable. As a matter of fact, I got to know the person who was um, subsequently who had been responsible for that. And he was a perfectly nice person, actually. Uh, he was a bit of a teddy bear, to be tell you the <laughs> truth. But he was working in an environment, in an institution that made him behave like a complete bastard. And, and, you know, and it is, anyway, such is capitalism, I suppose. They'll say that they're just doing, providing what their customers want, they're doing what yeah. everyone else does. I plead with anyone who works in those sorts of, where that sort of behaviour is normalised, is to stand up and say, no, this isn't OK. But, how, but really how do people farm? You know, how, how does this system Well, they don't, they, they are, virtually everyone that I was, my, who was, has, has gone bust since then. You know, there are now about four fresh produce companies in the UK. You know, there's G's, uh, there's Langmeads, there's Produce World, and they, they, and a few others, and they supply all the supermarket stuff. They may be supplied by other growers, but they hold the supermarket account. There are farms in Spain. You know, that's how the vegetables get to the supermarket shelves and and it's not an agriculture that i feel comfortable with it's not you know i mean food is culture isn't it i mean it's so much yeah. important for you isn't it and 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 you know where is the culture on the farm that's where it starts it's gone there is no culture there and i mean just yeah. just for you guys just to think i, I was thinking about what you said 18p for gem lettuce mm. would give you profit we pay one pound you know this we was are, quite we are as a years you know, still now in, in Sainsbury's, it's three pounds for two. Right. It's very sad. Mm. It's very well, sad. yeah, and, and food is um, nine or ten percent of GDP, but don't think that nine or ten percent goes to farmers. Point seven percent of GDP goes to farmers. You know, the rest of it, I never quite understand that figure, whether it includes eating out or whether it's just what's spent in the supermarket. But, but the amount that goes to farmer is... Um, and if you take off... Um, what you pay in subsidy to us all, it's down to about half a percent of GDP. Uh, goes to, it goes, you know, it is, you know, how much cheaper can food get? Yeah. You know, it's almost irrelevant what the farmer gets paid for it because yeah. it's it's twenty times more expensive by the time you buy it anyway. You know, so what difference does it make? But this is this is why I was so um, amazed when I when I went to the farm because this is when I got it that it's so much more than organic vegetables it's just a completely new way of of consuming food a completely 
new kind of financial model, if you will, that can, you know, which means yeah. that the supermarkets are... Well, it, it is the, the the fact that we deliver directly. I mean, and also, yes, I I'm, I think it is. It's pretty radical what we do. <laughs> you know, our our suppliers are. We have a seven year contract with them. So if we want to stop buying off them, or if they want to stop selling to us, it would take either of us seven years to get it. But it lives in a bottom drawer. No one looks at this contract. I mean, it is the whole relationship is based on you know long term a trust built over up over many many years. And that's particularly the case with our local farmers, but it's also the guys that we deal with in Spain. And I think that in itself is radical. Uh, the business is now owned by its employees, so that's pretty radical. And we deliver directly to the door. I mean, that's yeah, less radical in the age of you know internet retailing. It's becoming uh, you know more normal. And of course, it's no. All I organic. think it's still very radical because yeah. it grows because there's no retailer in the middle. Probably the most radical thing of all, though, I think, is is that um, is that we don't believe the customer's always right. I think that's <laughs> you know, which is where it all starts. If you think the customer's always right and they always have, must have the cheapest little gem lettuce, they must have it, you know, 365 days a year if that's what they want. Then that's where it all starts. That's what drives it all. You know, in, in, you know, it's it's having the the courage to say no. And, 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 and actually, I think because in, you know, in all sorts of things that we've done, we have said no. And, and, you know, we have been supported by our customers in that because actually, I th that's not what a lot of people want. That, I mean, how is that choice? They're all bloody same. I mean, it may seem very you know, middle class and exclusive and so on, but there are, you know, it is really important to support the alternatives, be it a farmer's market or a box scheme. And there are, you know, lots of other box schemes in... London, some of them more radical than us, actually. Then you 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 do have a choice. You might not always get exactly what that recipe tells you. You know, you should be putting in your tagine that night. Or <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, are you willing to make those sacrifices? You know, to step out of your comfort zone to to really embrace a different choice. And and you know, I really think that that we need to actually just doing what everyone else does and what every, whatever's easy. I'm I have to ask, you, you can, just a simple... Are you optimistic? The, uh, the Climate Rebellion and the Greta Thunberg stuff has given me some hope, actually. I, and there are, there are lots of good things going on. Uh, that, that, um, I mean, farming, actually, is really changing. You know, I, I went to a uh, conference uh, in the spring down in Cornwall, but it's radical... Australian talking about you know regenerative agriculture. He was a soil scientist, and and I went there and expected to see the normal organic people, and there were like two hundred farmers in the room who were you know, just lapping it up, you know, about you know these mycorrhizal fungi and invertebrates in the soil that they had to look after, and and the damage that glyphosate was doing them to them, and so on. And and the, anyway, I think there is a real appetite for change. I think this. 60 years we've had of agriculture being led by the agrochemical industry, I do think is coming to an end, or at least being challenged. And so there is some uh, hope in that. It, it's, I, I do, it's, my despair really is, is really with um, the sort of unbridled capitalism and the, the 
you know, what comes if you worship the marketplace as you do when you go into church, really, which is, you know, we, we need something pretty damn radical. People to say, no, I'm just really not happy for that. We really need a change. Let's hope it might be Caroline Lucas and some sort of central alliance of liberal greens. I think I see as the only hope. Yeah. Good. I think we, we all got the rant that we came for. <laughs> <laughs> you became quite famous for them. And actually, the, there's the, a book as well, a book of a little book of rants, which is actually a really... Really good read. Short rants. A really, yeah, a really good read. I want you to help me say a big, big thank you to Guy Singh Watson for being with us tonight. It's been so interesting. We could have stayed here for hours and hours, you know, ranting and putting the worlds to right. A uh, big round of applause, please. This is the last episode of this series in which we've chatted to makers, growers and producers from E5 Bakehouse to Bermondsey Street Bees. This has been a really fascinating series for us and actually so, so positive to find out more of the wonderful things small producers are doing. If you enjoyed this, please rate us and leave a review. It helps other people find us. And if you want to let us know what you think or what you want to listen, drop us a line on Twitter or on Instagram. Coming up next, we have a very special mini-series coming up from the Victoria and Albert Museum, which is all about their exhibition, Food Bigger Than the Plate. It's a fascinating exhibition. We've loved so much of the exhibits there. And we're going to talk with some of the artists and makers that are exhibiting. We hope to see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to our latest episode. If you'd like to join one of the next talks, please follow us on social media at Honey & Co. or go on our website, honeyandco.co.uk. With a huge thanks to Hester Kant for producing. A special thanks to our own Louisa Cornford for her wonderful research. And the music is by the lovely Alice Russell. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.